All right, it's great to have all of you back with us this morning. I want to begin by asking you uh, a question, actually a rather strange question. This is a bottle of Vicodin. So here's my question. Is this bottle of Vicodin a good thing or a bad thing? Actually, neither. Vicodin is not inherently good or bad, but it can be a source of incredible good or incredible evil, depending on how you use it. If used properly, Vicodin is one of the most potent painkillers out there. It's it and its uh, relative drugs like Oxycontin, all kinds of drugs that are derived from opium. They are the basis of all modern painkillers, all effective painkillers. They make modern surgery possible. Actually, these, these drugs have been used for thousands of years. The raw ingredients of Vicodin were used by the Assyrians, Sumerians, Egyptians, Romans, Greeks to make surgery possible. Only thing that could make extended surgery possible. So if properly used, this drug is actually a lifesaver. But if used improperly, it's actually a curse, a source of great destruction Uh, In 2010, 12 million Americans abused prescription opiate painkillers, among which Vicodin appears to be the most common. Uh, That abuse resulted in 14,800 deaths here in America in 2008. And according to the most recent statistics in 2011, there's actually now more people dying of Vicodin and drugs like it than of all the illegal drugs like heroin and cocaine. This is the biggest killer out there. The same little pills can be a source of incredible blessing or incredible destruction. It all depends on how you use it. Well, that is exactly how God wants us to to think about and understand our subject this morning. Money. Money. Neither inherently good nor inherently bad, but it can be a source of incredible blessing or incredible destruction in your life depending on how you use it. Money, if used properly, can be an incredible blessing. Uh, It buys the food and shelter and clothing that you need to survive. It can purchase an education. Many of you are thankful that money can purchase an education. Uh, It can pay for the doctors and medicines that keep you well. Best of all, it can support the charities and missionaries that are taking the gospel all around the world. Money can be an incredible source of good. But if used improperly, money can be a curse can bring destruction. I'll just give you a a few examples of the dangers of money. Money, if used improperly, can make idolaters of us. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, what is the most common false religion in America? It's actually money. The worship of money, the pursuit of money. We don't think of money like that. We don't think of money in religious terms. But according to Jesus, if you are pursuing money, if it is your first priority, then by definition, whatever is first in your life is your God. And so money is your religion. Money can make an idolater of it. So e- of you, so easily we can come to worship money rather than worshiping God. So money can make us idolaters. Money can also make us slaves. It can make us slaves of greed. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. What Solomon is getting at is that if your goal in life is to accumulate money, if your goal in life is to find satisfaction through wealth, through money and possessions, then you will never succeed. 
You will never accumulate enough wealth to satisfy your thirst for more. I'll prove it to you. Uh, There was an interesting interview a number of years ago with a guy named John D. Rockefeller. So you probably heard the name Rockefeller. What you may not know is that uh, by his death in 1937, Rockefeller was worth $1.4 billion. And at that time in world history, uh, that much money represented over 1% of the entire U.S. economy. In today's dollars, that would equal somewhere between 400 and $600 billion in this guy's pocket. Richest American who's ever lived, perhaps the richest person who has ever lived on the face of the planet. So late in life, some reporter is talking to John, and he asks him, well, how much money is enough? How much money do you need to be satisfied and go retire? What was his answer? Just a little bit more. 400 billion, not enough. Just a little bit more. Money can enslave you to greed. If your goal is to accumulate wealth, if wealth is what's most important to you, then it will make a slave of you. You will be a discontent, dissatisfied, anxious person, greedy, always seeking for more. So money, it can make you a slave of greed. It can also make you a slave of fear. I love this verse, Ecclesiastes 5, 12, again by Solomon, he says, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Love that. So middle class, we sleep well. We can sleep well. We can be satisfied. But the rich man who is dominated by lots of possessions, he has insomnia. He can't sleep at night. Why? Because he's anxious. He's worried about what's going to happen to his wealth. Who's going to come take it? What thief is going to break in and steal? How am I going to lose it? Rather than him owning his possessions, now his possessions own him. They keep him up at night, worried about how to protect them. We can so easily become slaves of the need to protect our wealth. The nicer the things you own, the more you worry about them. I I learned that um, firsthand a few years ago. For the longest time throughout my life, I always owned used cars. Nice thing about used cars, you never worry about them getting scratched. Because they're already scratched. Who cares? Gets dinged? Well, it's just another one of hundreds of dings on my car. So I never worried about my car until three years ago. I have Luke and Gracie, and it's time to go buy a minivan. And I buy this nice new minivan. I spend a lot of money on it. And now, all of a sudden, I'm that guy who parks at the back of the parking lot. I'm the guy who seeks out the no-dinger spots between, like, the bushes and the lane so that no one parks next to me because I don't want it to get it scratched. And I was taught how easily it is to become a slave of our possessions. Become a slave of the need to protect what is mine. Money and possessions can make slaves of us. Money and possessions can be a source of either blessing or a curse in your life. It all depends on how you use them. Now, fortunately, God knew that we would struggle with money. He knew how dangerous money is. It is incredibly powerful, either a source of great blessing or great destruction. He knew that, and so he gave us a couple tools to help us make sure that our money blesses us. A couple habits or a couple practices that if we will put in place in our life, we will be blessed by our money and possessions rather than cursed. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. They're the last two of our spiritual disciplines. That's what we've been talking about this summer, the spiritual disciplines. We're going to look at the last two today, simplicity and sharing. Now, before we get to those last two disciplines, let me just review for a moment, especially for those of you who weren't with us this summer, what are the spiritual disciplines? Well, very simply, the spiritual disciplines are just habits. 
Habits that God gives us, habits of body and of mind that allow us to effectively cooperate with God's spirit in the process of character transformation. Spiritual disciplines are just habits, things that you do regularly that put you in touch with the power of God's spirit to transform you. Now, these disciplines are required. God expects us to practice the spiritual disciplines. You can think of it this way. If you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you do that through the disciplines. Can't be a disciple without discipline. You've got to practice these habits if you want to grow as a mature follower of Jesus Christ. But it's important to understand, uh, as we have clarified earlier this summer, these disciplines themselves do not make you mature. These spiritual disciplines, these habits, there's nothing magical about them. They don't make you holy in God's sight. All they do is make you accessible to the Holy Spirit who alone can transform you. So as you practice these habits, two of which we're going to talk about this morning, the God, the Spirit working in you transforms you and makes you more like Jesus Christ through these habits. So I want to share them with you. Let's talk about these these two habits. The first that we're going to look at is the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Now, what is simplicity? It's easy to get confused about this idea of simplicity. A lot of people mistake simplicity for asceticism. Asceticism, fancy word. All we mean by asceticism is you renounce all possessions in the world. You go live in the desert with sackcloth on your back. Uh, that's asceticism, extreme austerity. Now, um, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. It depends on your motives, but that's not simplicity. The discipline of simplicity is not about how much you own. It's about how you treat your money and possessions. That's the idea of simplicity. Here's how I define it. The discipline of simplicity are habitual choices that keep you free from the domination of money and possessions. Simplicity is simply making choices regularly that keep you free from becoming enslaved to your money and your possessions. It keeps you free from all those bad things that money can produce like idolatry, greed, fear, anxiety. Simplicity is just simple choices you make day in and day out that keep you free from the domination of stuff. Simplicity is, in other words, a life of freedom. You are free to go as God leads. You are free to live a life with the Lord. You are free from the domination of your stuff. Living a life of simplicity makes sure that you own your money. Your money doesn't own you. You are free to use it as God leads you to use it. Now, we're covering simplicity first because it's a prerequisite for the second discipline, sharing. Uh, You're not going to have the ability to share with anybody if you don't first practice the discipline of simplicity. Simplicity is what frees you up so that you can share your money with God and with God's people. That's how it works. You've got to practice simplicity first. Now, there's a lot of specific advice that the Bible gives us for how to live a simple life, a life free from the domination of money and possessions. I'm just going to give you my top three this morning. I don't have time to walk you through all of them, but these are the three that I have found to be the most helpful in my life and the lives of others. So three steps, how to live the simple life. Step number one, if you want to live a simple life is live below your means. Now, here in America, we don't even do good of living within our means, do we? Whether we're talking about individuals or the federal government, we often spend way more than we make. We, We think it's successful just to live within your means, but God actually wants us to go further. God wants us to live below our means so that we are leaving a margin in our finances to share and to save. 
That's what God wants for you, to live below your means so there is a margin there that you can save and you can share. Share with you a couple of verses. This is a great one. Solomon lays this out in Proverbs 30. He says, four things are small on the earth, but they're exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. Why is Solomon calling us to look at the ants? Well, because the ants live below their means. The ants consume during the summer less than they bring in. And the excess they save for the winter when life gets hard, they're wise. They're godly in the sense that they save that margin for the future. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to save so that we can live a simple life, a life free of fear and anxiety. Wants us to save. And the Bible doesn't tell you exactly how much to save. I'm just going to give you my personal advice. This is not inerrant. This is just how I see it. I think you would be wise. I think we would all be wise to have accessible savings. So money that you can get at at any time that equal at least three months of your current income. Three months of your current income. Now, some of you students think, man, that's easy because I don't make anything. <laughs> okay, for you, maybe you got to have three months of, of whatever your expenses are going to be. Maybe that's how you need to think of it. But for most of us, we've got a job. And I think wisdom would say, save at least three months of your income so that if God takes you in a different direction in life, if he takes away that job, if there's a health crisis, if he opens a new door for you to serve him in some other place, you are free to follow where God leads. Live a simple life by saving. Uh, Second, you live a simple life by sharing. Um, God wants you to live below your means so that you have money accessible to share with others. Here is how it's put in the law of Leviticus. Leviticus 23, 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, God actually really wanted the Israelites to live below their means. He did not want them to harvest all the way to the edges of their field. Don't take all the profit you can. Don't spend everything you can on yourself. Don't consume everything you have on, your own, on yourself and on your uh, own desires. Instead, leave a margin. Leave some at the margins for the poor, for charity, so you can share with others. Now, we're going to talk more about that with the second discipline of sharing. For now, the key is you're not going to have anything to share with other people unless you learn to live below your means, to leave a margin for saving and for sharing. Now, very practically, how does this look in life? I'll just give you one example of, of how it would look to live below your means. Let's say that it is time to go buy a new car. Okay, you got to go buy a new car. How do most people approach that decision? Well, most people, the first thing they do is they ask, what is the maximum I can spend? What, what is the ceiling that I can spend? The maximum amount. Okay, once I've figured out what the maximum amount is, let me go out and find the best car for that price. Okay, that, that makes sense. But I, I actually don't think God wants us to look at it that way. I don't think God wants us to be living at the maximum. I think he wants us to leave a margin so we have money to share and money to save. And so if you can afford a car that's here, I think God probably wants you to buy a car that's here. Unless there's a compelling reason to to bump it up, leave a margin so you have something to save and you have something to share. Okay, second steps. First step, live below your means if you want to live a simple life. Second step, minimize debt. Minimize that. Now, here's the reason this is making it on my top three list. A few statistics for you. In 2011, average American family owed $75,600 in debt. 
average, so some way above that, according to the Federal Reserve, approximately 43% of American families spend more than they earn each year, making up the difference with credit. So they're living perpetually on borrowed money. Overall, consumer debt in America has grown 1,700% since 1971. And that's huge, 1,700% in 40 years. We take out a lot of debt. Many of us are in debt. And that's uh, really bad news, biblically speaking, because in Proverbs we're told by Solomon again, the borrower is the slave of the lender. That's just how debt works. You become the slave of the person who has lended you money. You are now subject to their terms. You have to pay them back. If you don't pay them back, they can take your stuff. They can come in and, and ruin your financial history. When you take a loan, you become a slave of the lender. Now, uh, that principle is always true. We live in a little bit of a more complex world than when Solomon did. Financially, things are more complex these days. The Bible speaks of debt as all a completely bad thing. We live in in a society and in an economy where not all debt is created equally. And so I want to give you some principles about thinking about debt in the modern world. Again, these are not inerrant. This is uh, Blake's take on loans. So I'll give you my own view based on uh, my understanding of how God would have us view debt. There are better forms of debt. I wouldn't call them good because really no debt is great. You'd avoid it if you could. Uh, But there are better forms of debt uh, these days. Better forms of debt I define as low interest loans that are used to purchase something with a stable or growing value. So that would be a house, hopefully, other than a few years ago. Uh, You could buy a home with a a better loan. You could buy a business. Um, You could purchase an education like you students are doing. Um, That's a better form of debt. You would avoid it if you could, but it's not a bad thing because the asset is growing. If you get into trouble, if God calls you elsewhere, you can sell the asset and pay for your debt. It gives you something um, that protects you. Uh, With these forms of debt, I encourage you to use them, but use them cautiously. Be careful with debt. Debt is never a simple, easy thing. Debt is always serious. Debt always puts an obligation on you. So use even these better forms of debt very, very carefully. Do not borrow more than you can realistically pay. Students, I really encourage you that way. If you've been paying attention to the news these days, you know that student loans are about to crash in our nation. Really bad situation going on in America with this bubble of student debt. Some students, many students owe far more than they'll ever be able to pay back based on the career that they've chosen. So be so careful, even with these better forms of debt. And then there's worse forms of debt. A worse debt is is taking out a loan to purchase a depreciating asset that is something that is going down in value or a loan that places your financial future at risk. You've borrowed too much or you've borrowed it at too high an interest rate. You can't pay it back. I think this would include credit card debt. That means actually holding a balance on your credit card month to month so you're paying interest on it. Um, It might include an auto loan. It would include consumer debt. That's like purchasing a TV, but on a finance plan. All of these forms of debt, my personal advice, again, this isn't from the Bible. This is from Blake. I encourage you to avoid them if at all possible. I think these are the kind of debts that Solomon was talking about when he says the debtor becomes a slave of the lender. See, assets depreciating. If you get in trouble, if something happens to your health, if God calls you overseas, you can't sell it and pay off what you owe. You'll be underwater. These are the kind of debts that can enslave you. Now, they might be necessary. You may have to go to a job, not have a car, and you got to go buy a car on credit. If so, 
fine, you use that loan so that you can have that job and drive to it. But I would encourage you, if you have some of these worst forms of debt, pay them off as soon as you can. God doesn't want you to be in bondage to debt. So pay them off as soon as you can. I always encourage people, pay off the high interest loans first. That just makes sense. And pay off the small ones first. I know that may seem uh, contrary to wisdom, but you pay the small ones first and it's exciting. You you feel victory um, and momentum and you keep paying them off. So pay the high interest ones, pay the small ones, get out of debt. If you want to live a simple life, avoid debt if at all possible. So live below your means, minimize debt. Step number three, limit the media that fuels discontentment. Limit your exposure to magazines, websites, and TV shows that stoke discontentment in your heart. Let me give you an example um, from my own life. I personally do not subscribe to Automobile Magazine. For those of you who know me, it's not because I do not like automobiles. I actually love cars, especially fast cars. I love them. Grew up um, repairing cars with my dad. Uh, I studied automotive engineering at A&M. I went and worked in the auto industry after college. I love cars, especially German cars. Um, A 911 passes, and I kid you not, my heart skips a beat because I just love it. I love a well-engineered car. Uh, Just one problem. I don't own a 911. And I don't think I'm probably ever going to own a 911. I own a Honda Civic. Um, And (laughs) my my little Honda Civic, it works great. It gets me where I need to go. It's reliable, great car. I'm content with it most of the time until I pick up Automobile Magazine. I begin seeing those pictures. I see those specs, horsepower, zero to 60, that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, my Honda Civic feels inadequate, does not seem to be what I want. All of a sudden, I feel discontentment. I find that it is hard for me to live the simple life if I'm fueling my discontentment. And so for me, I I don't subscribe to that magazine. Great if you do, but for me, I have to cut that out. For you, maybe it's not cars, maybe it's fashion. Maybe there's some show you watch, some magazine you read, some website you check out, and every time that you take in that media, that you see those pictures, that you read those articles, you find yourself just desperate to go to the mall or you find yourself just desperate to replace your wardrobe, you may need to limit your exposure because that stuff is causing you to live in discontentment. It is short-circuiting the simple life. For others of you, it might be a hobby like a boat. It might be a travel magazine. Um, Whatever it is that fuels your discontentment in life, limit your exposure to that because it will short-circuit the simple life. So God calls us to live simply, to practice simplicity by living consistently below our means, by minimizing debt, and by cutting off those those things that cause us to feel discontent with what we have. By practicing those steps, by living a simple life, that will enable us, empower us to practice the second discipline this morning. That's the discipline of sharing. You might call this the discipline of giving, the discipline of charity. It means taking some of your money and or possessions and giving it, giving it to God, giving it to God's purposes, giving it to charity, to the poor. That's what we're talking about. The discipline of sharing. Now, anytime that I or or someone else speaks about giving, there's a lot of questions that come to people's minds. And so I want to take the rest of our time this morning and I want to answer the frequently asked questions that come up around the subject of giving. Um, We'll start with really the most foundational question, why should I give? Why should I share what's mine with other people? You might be asking that question because you don't have anything. You're poor, you're broke. So why should you share the little bit you have with other people? 
Or maybe you're asking this question because, man, you're, you're just a little bit opposed to, to sharing on spec. You work hard for what you have. You work hard to, to bring in this money for your family. Why should you share it with those who maybe don't work as hard? Why should we give? Well, there's a lot of reasons that scripture gives. I'm going to give you my top three reasons for why we should give, why we should share what is ours with God and with others. The first reason is because giving is actually worship. Giving to God, giving to others is actually an act of worship. Philippians 4.18, Paul says, I have received full payment. He's talking money here and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In other words, when, when you write the check, when you donate online to a charity, um, when you drop money in the offering plate, uh, that's not a financial transaction. That's an act of worship. You are worshiping God in that act. Because what are you saying by putting that money out there in the offering plate or in charity? You are saying, God, you are worth this thing that is precious to me, money. You are worth my money, God. That is worship. That's actually why we pass the plate while we sing. It's not a play for your money. It's to give you an opportunity to worship. As we're singing, you can put money in the plate because that is how you say to God, God, you're worth even my money. That thing that is so precious to me, you're worth it. I give it to you as an act of worship. So give as an act of worship to the Lord. Second reason to give because it can advance the gospel. Jesus says in Luke 16, 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Really kind of odd verse here. What is Jesus saying here? When he says unrighteous wealth, um, he's not saying that money is bad. What he's saying is that money can't make you righteous. Money can't buy God's favor. Money can't impress God. Um, Your money can't actually do anything for your relationship with God directly. But what your money can do is it can advance God's kingdom. God can take your money that you share and use it to draw men and women to the truth of the gospel. That's the great thing about money. It can save people. Not directly, but God can use your money to, to bring the gospel to men and women all around this planet. And so Jesus is saying, you can take this money that has no lasting value, can't make you righteous, you can take it and you can trade it for the souls of men and women. You, you can buy friends for yourself, if you will. That's how Jesus is looking at it. People who come to the faith through your gift who will greet you when you arrive in heaven. They will say, thank you so much. The money that you gave, God used that to bring me the gospel. So why give? Because it can advance God's gospel. It can grow his kingdom. Third reason why we should give, because giving earns eternal reward. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Jesus is saying is as you give, as you share your money, as you give it away in this life, you are storing up for yourself a treasure in heaven. Now, what is that treasure? We're not exactly sure, actually. The Bible doesn't describe it in great detail. Um, in some passages, it calls it honor or glory that you will receive. In other passages, it calls it uh, crowns that will be on your head. That's a symbol of authority or honor before God. Whatever it is, God is saying, when you give your money to me in this life, I promise to respond by giving you reward in the future. In eternity, I will reward your gift. Now, when I first studied this passage, Matthew 6, I remember studying it back when I was a college student. It was really eye-opening to me because at some moment in studying this passage and going through it, it dawned upon me that my whole thinking about giving to God was wrong. 
I always thought that when I'm giving to God, I'm making a sacrifice. Oh man, I'm sacrificing this money I could have spent on myself or I could have saved. I am sacrificing it to you, God. No, that's actually the wrong way to look at it. When you give to God, you're not making a sacrifice. What are you making? An investment. You are making an investment in eternity. God's not flushing your money down the toilet. God is exchanging your earthly money for heavenly reward that you will enjoy for all eternity. In fact, it's the best investment possible because it's guaranteed and you will enjoy it forever. As you give your money to God and to God's kingdom now, you are trading it for eternal reward, for an an ERA, an eternal reward account with God that is always growing, that is always bearing interest and benefits for you. God will be no man's debtor. When you give to God, he promises to reward you for all eternity. And I think this reality helps us to answer the next question, which is actually the most frequent question I get. What is that? How much do I have to give? How much do I have to give? Everybody wonders that. How much does God expect me to give? And when they ask that question, they're basically asking, what is the minimum that God expects me to give? Now, when people ask that question, what's the most common answer you'll hear? 10%. A tithe is what it's called in scripture. It literally means 10%. Um, In the Old Testament law, God required his people, the Jews, to give 10% of their income uh, to God and to his kingdom. No, actually, what you may not know is that that tithe did not include all the money and animals uh, and grain and things that, they, that went into the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So when you actually add it all up, Old Testament Jews were giving to God more like 20% of their income rather than 10. Uh, but to be honest, I'm not really interested in a percent. I don't want to give you some percent to give. What I want to give you is a better question than this. The question isn't how much do I have to give? If you really believe what we just talked about, that giving is an act of worship, that giving draws men and women to eternal life, and that giving earns you eternal reward, then what you should be asking is, how much can I give? What is the maximum I can give to God after providing for my family and necessities? What is the maximum I can give him? For some of you, it may be 5%. For some, 10 For some, 25 For some of you, it may be 75% of your income. That after taking care of your necessities, you can give to God. That's what we should be thinking. How much can I give to God? Because it's an investment. Think about it this way. Imagine that you go home today and you get a phone call, you pick it up, and it's Warren Buffett. For those of you who don't know, Warren Buffett, Oracle of Omaha, um, considered to be the greatest investor of the 20th century. The guy is worth north of $44 billion today. He didn't start out that way. Started out just like us. Now worth $44 billion because he is awesome at investing. I want you to imagine he calls you up. He says, hey, um, I, I've been following your life, you know, on Facebook and I like the things that you do. I like who you are. I want to I offer you an opportunity. I want to take care of you. Um, if you will uh, give me whatever money you, you want to share with with me, I will put it with my own. It's not like you're invested in my company. Your money will be with my own personal money. I will give your money the same care and attention to detail that I give my own personal wealth. I will invest it with my money. I'll do that for you. Do you want in? Now, how are you going to respond to that call? Are you going to say, man, Warren, I feel really awkward here that you called me about money. How much, what's the minimum I have to give you to get you off the phone? That's not what you're going to say. He said, what's the maximum you'll take? I'll write it right now. Can I just give you my bank account? You can just take it all. In fact, after I'm done on the phone with him, I'm going to call up my wife and say, sweetie, what can we sell right now so we can give our money to him? This is the greatest investor in the last hundred years. That's how we should think about God. 
Not what's the minimum do I have to give to please God, but what's the maximum I can afford after taking care of my family and my basic necessities? How much can I give to God? Because it's the greatest investment in the world. Absolutely guaranteed it will bear interest for all of eternity. What's the maximum I can give? For some of you, it's a lot more than 10%. Give it as an investment, not a sacrifice. Okay, third question that people often ask, how should I give? How does God want me to give my money to him? Three quick principles for you. Give joyfully. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, don't give to God like you give to the IRS. <laughs> give to God cheerfully. Give to God recognizing this is not a sacrifice. This is an investment that's guaranteed to bear interest for all eternity. This is a privilege. So give to God cheerfully. Actually, so you know, God cares a lot more about the attitude than the amount. Even if you're giving two bucks, if given cheerfully, it honors God. Give joyfully. Second, give regularly. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Remember, this is a, a spiritual discipline. It's meant to be a habit. So I encourage you to practice it regularly. Maybe it's the first day of every week. Maybe it's the first day of every month. Whatever it might be, have a time, that re- a reoccurring time where you give to the Lord. Let it become a habit in your life. Then it'll just become part of you. It's just what you do. You give. That's what God wants. He wants it to be a habit. You don't even have to think about it. You just, that's what I always do, first of the month. So give regularly. Third, give privately. Matthew 6, thus when you give to the needy, says Jesus, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They have no eternal reward. They're done. Money given for show doesn't count with God. Uh, instead, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Give secretly, give privately. Uh, don't give some money in the offering plate and then post it on Facebook that you did that. Do it privately. Do it privately. Final question that people often ask is who does God want me to give my money to? To whom should I share my money? Uh, first answer might actually surprise you. First answer is your family and friends. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, and he's talking about financial provision, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God expects us to take care of our own. He expects us to take care of the financial needs of our immediate family, our extended family, our close friends, our neighbors. We should be the support network for one another. Now, we have to be careful. Don't let your money enable someone to sin. But if there's a legitimate need out there, God wants you to share. Second, God wants you to give to your local church. Now, here's one of the most awkward verses for a preacher to read. In the whole Bible, Galatians 6, 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> I have to read it. Uh, really not trying to make a play for money. God does want us to participate financially in our local church. Um, you can do that in the offering plate. Lots of you don't carry cash or checks anymore, so you can do that on our website. You can set up recurring giving or give to the ministry of the church. I, I do want to pause for a moment and just say, you guys may not know this, but um, Grace Bible Church as a congregation has been incredibly generous to those of us who are on staff. I have a lot of friends who are pastors at other churches, um, and they're laying off people. They're reducing salaries. None of that's happened here. Even though we're in the middle of a recession, it's because of you guys. You've been incredibly generous, and I and my family really thank you for that. So 
keep it up. You guys are awesome. Um, so give to the local church. Third, give to the poor. God wants us to give to those who are, are legitimately poor. Matthew nineteen twenty one. Jesus said to them, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. We're gonna talk a lot more about this one as we jump into the book of James this semester. Lots about giving to the poor. Fourth, give to missions. Talked about that at the end of the book of Romans uh, last semester. Paul invites us, God invites us to participate in the task of reaching the nations with the gospel. You can do that through prayer and through giving. You can give straight to missionaries, to mission agencies, or to the church. We support uh, 80 or so missionaries now. Give to missions. Uh, I said earlier I'm really excited to get to end uh, this message on money, this message on giving with communion. Communion, because uh, God wants us to understand that as much as we give him, you might give him all the money you own, you might give him all the money on the planet, still that's nothing compared to what God has already given you. God is the greatest giver. You can give everything you own and you've not come close to giving as much as God has given because he didn't give money, he gave his own son. That's why in a chapter all about giving our money to the church, at the end of that chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, 15, look at how Paul ends this chapter on giving. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul's point is God is the greatest giver in the universe, not any of us. You can give everything you own and you got nothing on God because he gave what is most precious. He gave his own son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to celebrate in communion here in a few minutes, um, that God, even though we were his enemies, even though we're sinners, even though we deserve his wrath, he freely gave his greatest possession, his own perfect son, Jesus Christ, to live for us and then to die for us. He gave his son as a sacrifice for us, then raised Jesus from the dead, and now he offers to every person on the planet eternal life, greatest thing ever given. Eternal life with God, forgiveness forever as an absolutely free gift. No strings attached, you're not paying it back. An absolutely free gift because God is the greatest giver of us all. That's what I want us to celebrate as Colin and the band lead us through a song that's all about that. I just want us to take this time as the elements pass. Guys, you can come forward. I want us to take this time and reflect not on what we give to God, but on what God gave to us through Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the greatest gift ever given. We thank you that the Creator, the Lord of heaven and earth, came and took on human flesh and took our sins upon himself and died in our place. We praise you that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and Satan. 
And we thank you that uh, by the merits of Christ's death and resurrection, you now offer to all of us the free gift of eternal life. And Father, we pray for any person in this room who has not yet received that infinitely valuable free gift. Father, please help them uh, to just not worry at all about giving to you, not worry at all about the financial stuff we talked about earlier, but to think only about what you have given them freely. And Jesus, we pray that they would receive this morning, Lord, and they would receive this free gift of eternal life. And for those of us who have received that gift, Father, I pray, help us to be a grateful people. Help us to reflect today, this week, um, every day for the rest of our lives on the indescribable gift that you have given us through Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that, that we would give to you, that we would share our resources, but not out of obligation, out of joy, out of gratitude that you are always the greatest giver. You will never be in debt to us. You have given us so much grace. You have blessed us so richly. I pray, Father, that we would give joyously and graciously. I pray, Father, help us to be a congregation of people who share your grace and your message to this community and to the entire world. Thank you for your son who made all that possible. In his name we pray, amen.